All right, so we're going to begin, we'll be in um, 1 Thessalonians in just a moment. But there exist varieties of perspectives about the end time events. One thing all believers agree on is that Jesus is coming back and we will live eternally with him. Now, is there a perspective, is there a Christian perspective that does not believe those things? No. If you, don't, if you don't believe that, you're outside of Christianity. Now, when Jesus comes back, um, if the rapture is the same time as the second coming, these other events, we, we have different opinions on. But what we all agree, Christianity all agrees on this idea that Jesus will return and he will um, set, bring us into eternity with him and we will be with him forever. And if you don't b- believe that, then you don't believe in Christian doctrine. Um, We've taken the time over the last couple of days to lay out a specific uh, school of thought, pre-trib, pre-millennialism, which I'm not going to try and, and defend or argue for or point out um, what I would see as shortcomings in any of these other perspectives. I just want to read these passages, but I also want you to know, if you weren't here, my persuasion. So you don't have to try and figure me out and say, where is he coming from? I just told you, you don't have to figure me out. But I just I want to read these passages from this perspective and see God's glorious plan of redemption. You know, when God first created man back in the garden in Genesis, um, it was a beautiful situation. It was wonderful fellowship. The Lord would come and he would walk in the cool of the day and he would meet with Adam. He would meet with Eve and there was this beautiful fellowship. But Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and death entered the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord gave a promise, the first promise, in that he said that one day he would give through a woman a man, a seed, and he would come and he would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived him. He would reverse the curse and there would be redemption again. And so as we go through Genesis, what we see is all of these troubled births, right? And you see, it's like, oh, is she going to be able to have a baby? Is she ever going to be able? She finally had a baby. Wow, she's really old and she had a baby. And we have Sarah. And then we have, um, you know, two uh, twins fighting in the womb. And what's going to happen there? And then you have the children of of, uh, Israel down in Egypt. And sons are being thrown into the river. And there's a crisis around the birth of children because the focus is on what? The seed. The child that's going to come, that's going to be the Redeemer. We even come to this one moment in Genesis chapter 22, where we know that it is through Abraham that the promised seed will come. And he finally receives this child, Isaac, as an old man. And then the Lord asks him to take him and to what? To offer him up on Mount Moriah, Calvary, the very place where Jesus died. And he asked him to sacrifice him there. And as Abraham went to bring uh, the blade down upon Isaac, the Lord stopped him and said, stop. What does he say? I will provide myself a sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, the Lord provided his only son, Jesus Christ, on the exact spot, the same mount, And Jesus died on the cross, and there was the seed, and redemption came. And now, as we read through the scriptures and the disciples, they're all expecting that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, He has come, He is redeeming, He's going to set up the kingdom, and the Lord would have set up the kingdom, but they rejected Him. And so, He says, now this is not for you. And so the full redemption that God wants to bring to this world, to Israel, was stopped because of Israel's rebellion and the world's rejection of Him. Now what He did on the cross provides us complete and total salvation today, but there is more to come. And so Jesus ascended to uh, the Father and He said that He would return, that He would come again. And so we are in that stage now where we are waiting for Uh, the Lord to complete this glorious plan of redemption. Before Jesus comes back to this earth, there's an event called the rapture of the church. You can turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And this is the event 
where the Lord will come and he will take the church up into heaven with him. Let me read. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Christians who have died. That's what it means by sleep. For the Lord himself, he's not going to send an angel. Jesus is going to do this himself. will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured or caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're going to have a meeting with Jesus. Now, I hope you met with Jesus this morning already in worship. I hope maybe even before you got here, you, you took a little time to pray and, and to just get your heart right. You were speaking with the Lord. You were meeting with Him. But there's going to come a moment, there's going to come a time where the Lord is going to snatch us up into the air. And if we have already died and gone before, then we will meet with the Lord in the air and those that are being raptured and caught up while walking on this earth and will be there with Him. But Jesus is the center of that attention. He, we were going to be with him. He himself will come. Can you even begin to imagine what that moment is going to be like? Just to be going about your daily business and then finding yourself in the presence of the Lord. And so the day is coming when Jesus will end what we now know as the church age. And he will look to finish the redemption of Israel um, in the next short period of time. But it's not just a meeting with Jesus. As Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians, he's writing to comfort them because they're grieving over the loss of those who have passed away and that they don't have fellowship with, they're not able to spend time with. And this is a difficult thing for us all, isn't it? When those we love, they leave this earth before us, when they pass away. And if they have faith in Christ, we know they immediately go into the presence of the Lord, but we are left to not have fellowship with them. But you will see those who have gone. If the Lord was to come back in your lifetime, in my lifetime, we will see those people that have gone before us in the faith. Those that we know, those we love, family members. And we will be joined together with them and we will be meeting the Lord in the air. Now listen, you're going to be glad to see them, but they're going to be the second show. The first show is Jesus. And your eyes are going to be upon him. And you are going to be taken, and I'm going to be taken with him. And so there is this event called the rapture. Another passage that talks about this scene um, is in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15, verses 50 through 58. And here we read about this event, but how we will receive new bodies. So turn with me over there, 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is one of the most triumphant passages of the New Testament. Maybe not the most, but it's right up there at the top. And so he's writing to the Corinthians and he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not going to all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So he writes 
again about this rapture event. Some will be alive and they will be caught up. And your body will go through this translation, it will go through this metamorphosis, and you will receive a body like the risen Lord. And um, some that have died will be raised up and they will receive these new bodies. Um, in Romans, it talks about how all creation is groaning. I bet if we could have had a microphone in some of your homes, we could have heard groaning this morning as you got out of bed, as you were putting those socks on, as you were bending over, you're like, oh, I'm so stiff. And our bodies, we groan. You groan the older you get even more, by the way. And, and so your body is, is going to be changed and transformed, and it's going to be like the Lord's body. What does that mean? No death. There will be no more death. It means there will be no more disease. It means there will be no more temptation to sin. How about that one? Now, maybe you're walking in victory over temptation. Well, what will it be like to not even, not even be tempted anymore? To be in a perfect state and, you know, I think the, it's, it's the, this is a great hope for all of us um, to think about, of being up in the presence of the Lord. And, and you can't go, it says here, you can't go into the kingdom of heaven equipped the way you look right now. Your body is not suited for that environment. If an astronaut wants to leave planet Earth and go up and get out of this, you know, the shuttle um, on the moon, he or she has to put on a different kind of suit in order to be able to live in that environment. And that's only temporary, right? We're just making modifications. But the Lord is going to transform these bodies so that they are completely suitable for that new environment of being in the presence of the Lord. And so when someone passes away, there is a hope that one day we will meet them again and we both will receive these new resurrected bodies. Still talking about our meeting with the Lord, we turn to John chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus lets us know that he's going away to prepare a place for us. He says in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Look at the intimacy that exists in this passage. The Lord is left, and we know this well, right? He is not here with us in bodily form. In spirit, certainly, we walk and we worship the Lord, and we fellowship with Him, and we receive His comfort. But we do not have that physical pre uh, representation of Jesus here and now. But He is in heaven, and He is preparing a place for us at His Father's house. And we will be with him. When we are raptured, when we go through the 1 Thessalonians 4 and the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, we will then go into heaven with these new bodies, and there we will be with the Lord in a place that he has prepared for us. Makes you wonder what the place must be like that the Lord has prepared. He's been gone for 2,000 years and he has prepared this place and one day he will come and we will be with him. Let me ask you this question. When you read John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3, as a believer, where do you see yourself in relationship to the Lord? I always see myself at the front of the line, front row seats with Jesus. When I think about sitting down at a meal, I'm not like in the other room at the kids' table. I'm right there at the table with him. Does anybody else think about that like that? It's like front row seats with Jesus. I never think I'm, not, I'm like in the back. It's like, I can't see him. I wish I could see him. There's too many people. There is going to be the ability for the Lord to intimately, with the bodies we have, and the, the glory of, of heaven, that we are going to be able to have this intimate, deep fellowship with Him. You're not going to be on the sidelines. You're not going to be kind of like, well, you know, I never really did a great job, so I'm just glad to be here. I'll just kind of push the broom across, you know, the, the throne room of heaven. No, you are a part of this as well. And you're going to be 
fellowshipping with the Creator, with the Maker, with Savior Jesus Christ. What a glorious promise that He has given to us. The central focus of all prophetic prophetic events is Jesus and the salvation that He has provided for us and the glory that will come to Him. Well, once we have been translated and we are on our way to this wonderful place that the Lord has prepared, we are going to get our first glimpse of heaven. What's it going to look like? I believe that Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, where John is caught up and he sees this scene. It's the first scene that he describes in heaven. I believe there's, you can make a great argument for this is going to be the first thing you see when you get to heaven. Now, my pastor, Pastor Chuck, used to say, make sure you read this passage well and you know it well so that when you get to heaven, you're not asking a bunch of questions and looking like a country bumpkin that's lost in the big city. So right? familiarize yourself with this and know what's going on. And when people are looking around, say, no, I know what this is. Let me tell you about it. You know, this is going. I want you just to think of being caught up into heaven or passing from this life into the presence of the Lord like saints have gone before through natural death. And here's the scene. Verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. If it's closed, bad news, right? The door is open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a, there was a rainbow around the throne. And the, in appearance like an emerald. Around the t- throne were 24 thrones. And on thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Get familiar with that scene, because I believe that, even as John saw this when he was caught up into heaven to receive the revelation, that when we are caught up into heaven, this is what we're going to see. A sea of crystal, and you have this emerald rainbow, and you have the lightnings, and you have the thunderings. Can you imagine what it's going to be like as the light hits a crystal uh, floor and begins to refract all over the place? And there's thunderings. You have angels that are singing and worshiping. And heaven is uh, just breaking forth with praise. That is going to be the opening scene for heaven. That's not a bad one, is it? How glorious it's going to be. What a breathtaking moment. It's going to be like when we're standing next to each other, we're going to be elbowing each other and pinching each other and saying, it's here. The kingdom is here. Look at this. We read about this. We talked about this. And now we are living it out. Well, now in the presence of the Lord, at that place that is prepared for us, having seen the glory of the Lord, the next event that we anticipate happening in heaven for the church is an event called the Bema Seat. It's where Christians will give an account for how they've lived their life. 
There are two different passages I want to look at for this one. As first one is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15, and then we'll read over into 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. But as you're making your way there, what I want you to know is we are not an answering the question in these passages whether or not these people get to go to heaven. They, these are believers. These are those who have uh, received redemption in Jesus Christ. Our sin has been punished in His body. And so the question for those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ is not whether you get in. This is not what these verses are talking about. These verses are talking about as those who have made it into the presence of the Lord because of God's grace, we, what is going to happen as we give an account for how we have lived this life? It's kind of like when you're growing up and you had chores in the house. You're part of the family, but you still had to do things. And, you know, depending on what kind of house you were raised in and how mom and dad did it, you know, maybe you got, you know, rewarded for those chores that you did. Or you got punished maybe for those things that you haven't. You're still part of the family, but you either did a good job or you did a bad job. And this is what these verses are concerned with. So we are in the presence of the Lord. We have these glorified bodies. We are, we've got the place that the Lord has prepared for us. And we read in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, uh, excuse me, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss but here it is. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. Here, Paul mentions this judgment seat, this bima. Bima means judgment. Uh, verse 9 says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now some of you maybe are tripped up, wait a minute, I thought we weren't saved by works. You're not saved by works. This is not a salvation question. This is a stewardship question. This is a reward question. Your soul is secure in Jesus Christ. It said there in that first passage, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, that some will suffer loss, but they will be saved yet as through fire. It's kind of like, you know, somebody sliding under the, uh, the gate as it's closing. And as they're coming through, they, they make it and like, I made it. Yeah, you made it, but you don't have anything to show for it. You know who would be an example of that? The thief on the cross. He says, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He says, you will be with me today in paradise. He made it in, but boy, that's close. I mean, that is really, really close, wasn't it? I mean, he, what did he do for the Lord? I mean, he confessed him as Lord. He rebuked the other thief. And, 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 and yet, and yet, here we are talking about him. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That simple confession. Is that not the grace of God? That, that we can be 2,000 years talking about this guy who like slid under the gate and they were putting out the flames on this guy. It's like, you made it. You made it. <laughs> you know, you're all right. But as through fire. And that, that's the way some believers are going to enter in. But others are going to enter in with a glorious entry. And I think of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned. And what do we read that Stephen saw as he was being stoned? He saw Jesus. And what was the position of Jesus? Standing. Now you can put whatever emphasis you want on it, but I look at that and I'm like, Jesus is saying, well done. 
I'm, you know, standing up saying, you've done a great job. Welcome in. And isn't that the way we want to enter in? Is to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we're in heaven. Our bodies have been changed. Maybe we've, we've been raised up. You know, our bodies have been raised up. We've been in the presence of the Lord spiritually, but now our bodies have joined at the rapture or we're walking around and we're caught up in the air. We see this place that he's provided for us and we've seen this glorious throne room and now we're at the a seat. We're there where the Lord is making judgment for how we have lived our life. Ephesians 2.10 says we've been created for what? Good works. Which he created beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? The Lord has written down a to-do list and you have a to-do list. The Lord has given... Anybody have a to-do list? A honey-do list? Here are the things I want... The Lord has given you a to-do list. I have a to-do list. Things that I must do, that I should do. Because the Lord has put them down. And these are the things that we're going to be judged for. I gave you these works to do. And I gave you these spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12. Spiritual work done with spiritual gifts. Done with the power of my spirit. And He is going to judge us. Those works and see what we have done. Whether we have fulfilled them, gold, silver, precious stones, or whether we didn't do them, wood, hay, and straw, and those will burn up. No reward. It says that there'll be a loss of reward. How can you lose a reward that you've yet to get? Because the Lord has given a to-do list, and then the associated reward that would go with those things. So when I get to heaven, I don't want to see anything coming off of the table that the Lord intended for me to receive. And like, well, you know, I'm not really into rewards. Uh, well, you can act prideful like that if you want to, but you want to know who is into rewards? Jesus is in rewards. Do you know what you call a person when you give them a gift? And they say, I don't really care about this gift. Do you know what you call that person? Rude. That's what you call them. And, and I think sometimes we're just like rude. Jesus says, hey, behold, I'm coming quickly, and I've got, my re I've got your reward with me. Jesus is excited to give a reward to you and to me and to his church. And for the super spiritual among us to say, yeah, I'm not really into that. I think it's just flat out rude. If I, you know, I've, I've taken many overseas trips. And um, every trip I ever went on, when I came home, um, I always got gifts for the kids and my wife. And so I got home. They were as glad to see my suitcase as they were me. You know, they knew that something was in there. And we'd open it up and we'd pull it out and whatever it was. Sometimes it wasn't much because the places I was going didn't offer much to get. But, but I always did that. And, and so the Lord has a reward. We're going to be, we are going to be before the Lord as he sits on a judgment seat. And Troy Warner's life is going to be reviewed. Not what kind of sin did you get into, son? That's dealt with at the cross. The question is, what kind of good works did you get into, my son? Did you fulfill what I gave you? I had some amazing things planned for you. Let's look and see what you've done. Oh, Lord, you know, I kind of had a boat, and Lord, I kind of had a big family, and I had to spend time. I couldn't really spend time on your kingdom, Lord. How are you going to feel about that? In that moment, how are you going to feel that you allowed these earthly things to keep you from following the Lord? We just had a lady in our church who um, left her husband and kids and spent 90 days over on the mission field. Um, there's another gentleman um, who is over on the mission field long term, and his wife has come home um, and kids because of everything that's going on in, the, in Ukraine. They had to kind of get away. He's in Georgia. There's tensions there, too. They came home. And both of these ladies were sharing recently at our missions update and um, as we were planning for it, I, I told actually Zach's dad, um, Jeremy, and I said, you know what? It reminds me of that passage in Corinthians. It says, and those of you that are married ought to live as though you are not. Great verse, right? You might not want to break that one out of Valentine's Day. Probably won't go over real well. I can remember the first time I really discovered that as a married guy. And I, I said to Rebecca, I said, oh, Rebecca, I got this verse. It's just so ministering to me. It's just a great. She says, well, what is it? I says, those of you that are married ought to live as though you're not. She goes, you're making that up. 
And I'm like, no, it's the Word of God. It's inspired Scripture. She goes, well, what does it mean? You know? Well, what does it mean? I think it means what these ladies have done, what these families have been willing to do, because it was laid on their heart. Here's the task. I want you to go over to Georgia for 90 days, and I want you to minister. And so they said, Lord, we'll do it. And they got up and they went, because it was one of the things on the to-do list. What is on your to-do list? I can't write it for you, okay? Because I'm not King Jesus. You don't want me to write your to-do list, but you have one. And you and I will stand eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose with Jesus in that glorified state in his throne room. And he's going to say, let's look at your life and what you've done for me. Now, you maybe have used a great excuse on Tyler. And you've used a great excuse with all Christian friends about what you can't do because of all the different things you're caught up with and the things that are going on in your life and the career that you have and the education, the goals and the dreams you have, you know, and you have all that. But I just want to ask you, are you okay with saying those things when you're eyeball to eyeball with Jesus? When you're looking into his face and you are still seeing the scars on his brow from the thorns that were crammed into his head for you and for me. Now listen, this is not a guilt thing. All it is is I've got to do what Jesus has asked me to do. I don't have to do what Tyler has been called to do. He doesn't have to do what I've been called to do. What has God called you to do? And now you go and you do that. I don't have to be Billy Graham. I don't have to be Chuck Smith. I don't have to be anybody but Troy Warner and then walk in those things. But I am going to have that moment before the Lord. Is it sobering? I think that's rather sobering. But you know what else? I think this event is not going to lack grace. It's going to be amazing. Well, what do you mean by that? The thief on the cross, all he could say in probably short, gasping you know, speech was, Remember me. And the Lord says, okay, and now here we are, 2,000 years, and we're talking about it as a sermon, and we are using this as a, a motivation of the grace of God. That's, I mean, that's all he had, and yet God has used it. All the Lord wants is for you to bring what's in your hand. And I think there's going to be those things that we look at in heaven where the Lord says, now I want to reward you for the way in which this individual or this scene you know, um, responded to your testimony and to your, your witness. Some of us are going to go, whoa, 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 time out, Lord. I was a terrible witness in that situation. Yeah, yeah, I know. Actually, you were a terrible witness. But you know what? People did know that you were my child. And even though you were a hothead and sometimes you blew up and you really caused it difficult, I had to work extra hard, I still used that little testimony you left behind and I used that to bring them to salvation. I had a moment like this. I was a missionary in Australia and I had a friend call me up, which this is, you know, back in the... The, the 90s and um, late 80s, actually. Um, yeah, late 80s, early 90, maybe 1990. And um, so, you know, there's no FaceTime. There wasn't any of that. There was no internet. There was no text, email. It was write a letter or spend three bucks a minute. That's what it was. And I got a call from a high school buddy, um, Kevin. And he called me up and he said, um, he goes, hey, Troy. He goes, I just want to call you and let you know I'm walking with Jesus. I go, Kevin, that is awesome. And I had witnessed to him as a high school, you know, when we were in high school and brought him and he had made a profession of faith at our church. And, and I was not a good witness all the time, though. And um, he goes, I just want to say thank you for leading me to Christ. I said, oh, Kevin. I said, I was a terrible witness. You know that. I go, who are we kidding? He goes, yeah. He goes, I know you were. But you know what? <laughs> yeah. He goes, I knew you were, but he goes, I also knew, I could see how you were just like, you would, you would be a bad witness, and then you would apologize, and you would do the right thing. And I just watched the turmoil in your life, and I knew what you really wanted to do. And I think that is the grace of God, isn't it? So I think this is a sobering scene. It is a completely sobering scene. However, I think we're going to be surprised at the grace of God even in this scene. And the Lord's going to say, yes, and that person ended up coming to faith. Ended up coming to faith through me. Yes, through you. But Lord, I don't understand. That's all right. It was my grace. You did one little thing, and then I took those loaves and those fishes, and I fed a multitude with it. And so these 
500 people have got saved through that one person you led. What do you think you're going to do? As the Lord's placing that crown upon your head, you're going to fall to your knees and you're going to throw it down before Him and say, Oh Lord, you're the one that's worthy. So the judgment seat, the bema seat, after being raptured up into heaven and, and being in the presence of the Lord is going to be a sobering thing that should cause us to live well now. But I think we should also expect to see the grace of God. We will see a loss of reward. Some will. But I want to ask you, what about for you? Is there going to be a loss of reward? Or are you pressing in to say, I am leaving nothing on that table that is meant for me by King Jesus? I mean, if he wants to give me that reward, I want that reward. Not only to receive what is, he's intended for me, but also so that I might give him glory back. As a way of saying thank you, I did everything you asked me to do. Very sobering. So we're in the presence of the Lord. Um, there'll be the marriage of the Lamb that happens in uh, Revelation chapter 19. And then right after that will be the second coming of Christ. So we will at this point, as we move into this, have been in heaven for seven years. We've seen, got our new bodies. We've seen the place the Lord has prepared. We've gone to the Bema seat. We've had the marriage of uh, the Lamb uh, to us, the church, that bride. So that metaphor is fulfilled. And then the second coming of Christ so for the church, what God has intended for the church has been fully realized, right? We Our sins are forgiven. We have the new bodies. We have been given um, rewards for how we've lived our life. We've been joined again in that ceremony in Revelation chapter 19. I think it's around verses 9 or 10, something like that. And then, then the Lord's going to say, now I've got to go back and finish up with my chosen people, Israel. And so they've been going through it on planet Earth, haven't they? For seven years, a tribulation has been going on. Nations have gathered together to destroy her. The Antichrist, the false prophet, have been leveraging and moving in a way to destroy Israel. Famines and earthquakes and volcanoes and all kinds of disruptive, demonic things have been happening on the earth and has caused Israel to look to Jesus. They are about to be overwhelmed before Revelation 19 happens. They're about to be fully consumed and then the spirit of supplication is going to be poured out upon them. Their eyes are going to be open. They're going to look on Him whom they've pierced. They're going to say, time out. Jesus of Nazareth? Is Jesus the Messiah? And they will know in that moment, in a future day, at the end of the tribulation, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they will call out for salvation. Let me ask you this question. When you prayed to receive Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, how long did He wait before He moved into action to save you? Would you say that it was instantaneous? And I think it will be for the nation of Israel. I think when they call out for salvation, it's going to... That you know is going to be instantaneous, and this is what it's going to look like. We'll have this perspective. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be worshiping, and then we're going to see everything just coming to this climax. And we read Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, he had a name written that no one knew except himself and a few select commentators. <laughs> Just saying. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, and who are they? Well, we get the clue, clue right here. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's what we get at the Bema seat. We get these robes of, of righteousness and, and we're, we're, we're dressed in this way. We follow him on white horses. Some of you think, I don't like horses. You better start. I don't know. Go take some riding lessons. Get ready for it. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. It's the, his testimony. It's his word that's going to destroy the nations, not his bow and arrow. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So he's in the winepress, smashing the grapes. And he has this white robe, and that white robe is all you know, splattered 
with the stain of the grape, but that's a metaphor for the battle that's going on of men's blood. And so we're reading here that verse 16, and he has on his robe his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Marriage supper of the Lamb, good meal to go to. The supper of the great God, you're on the menu, actually. Not a good one to go to. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The nations that have gathered together in Israel will see the Lord coming back and say, let's fight him, let's kill him, and let's kill all everybody else who's on those horses with them. And if you were to say, that's ridiculous. Man would never see God and decide to kill him. And I would say, have you ever heard of the crucifixion? It's happened once before. It will happen again. And actually, it will happen even one more time at the end of the thousand-year reign. Verse 20, the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed, and the sword which proceeded from, his, uh, from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is what happens when the Lord comes back to rescue Israel. He will destroy the armies that have gathered together to wipe Israel out. And Israel will be rescued. They will be saved. Now when Jesus comes back and he breaks through heaven into this atmosphere, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but as he comes back into this, this atmosphere riding on, the, on this horse and we with him on these other horses, he will first begin down in the south, down in a place you look in your map, down in Basra, your Bible maps. It's down in the south, Petra, Indiana Jones, you know. So he'll be down, the Lord will come and he will rescue Israel down there. He will uh, fight the battle up in Armageddon in the north. And then he will come around the city of Jerusalem. He will rescue her there. And then he will place his foot upon the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two, and he will walk in, and there will be a glorious event that takes place. Let's turn to another passage. It's still related to the same time frame, and it's the day Jesus sings is what I call it. It's Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. It's talking about the rescuing of Israel, completing their salvation. And as we read this, think of how long it's been, even up to this moment, that the Lord has worked with the nation of Israel to redeem them and to be able to fulfill the promises. I want to read this passage. It says, For then I will restore the peoples a pure language, and they shall call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And that day... You should not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and those who no longer, uh, you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of the Israel shall do no unrighteousness. And we know that's not true today. Tel Aviv is like one of the... Um, homosexual capitals of the world. So there's all kinds of unrighteousness in Israel today. But there are days coming when Christ comes back. And speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. And that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, 
The mighty one will save. I mean, he's been down in Basra. His clothes are dripping with the blood of men. He's defeated the armies in Megiddo. He's come up into Jerusalem, and the king is in their midst. What a scene. Imagine Jesus coming off of the Mount of Olives and coming into the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. It says, the mighty one will save. And then look at this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. The second coming of Christ. That's what's going on here. Now, as Jesus comes down in, on the Mount of Olives, I believe that the, the king in their midst is what we're talking about. And we read that he's going to be quieting them with their love because they've, been, they've almost been wiped out. And, and he says that the, the, he will rejoice over them with singing. Now, is this just uh, poetic here? It may be. And maybe it is just poetic. But I think, it's my own personal opinion, as the Lord comes off the Mount of Olives, there's going to be a specially scripted song that he's going to be singing because it's finally finished. Redemption for Israel has happened. And he's going to sing over them and he's going to rejoice. Well, the Lord will then come in and set up the kingdom with them. And then we, we only have two more, uh, two, three more passages to read here and we're done. Um, he will then reign upon the earth. He's back on earth. He's going to reign for a thousand years. Revelation 21 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him in the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So you don't want to be part of the second resurrection because you'll be raised to death, to judgment. But they shall be priests, those of the first resurrection, of which we are as well. Um, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Christ is back on the earth. He is reigning upon the earth. The tribulation saints who have lost their heads will reign with him. But the church will rule with Jesus as well. Revelation 1.6, Revelation 3.21, Revelation 5.10 all speak about how the church, we, will rule with Jesus. I'll give you these three verses. Um, Revelation 1.6, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In Revelation 5.10. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Jesus is upon the earth. He's ruling and reigning. And you will rule and reign with Christ. I know it's a hard one to believe when you look in the mirror. I have the same problem. But it's true. You're going to sit on a throne. And if it wasn't in the Bible, it would be total blasphemy to say it. But this is the grace of God. How amazing that we will rule and reign with him. Watching King Jesus rule over this earth and teaching from Jerusalem, not allowing rebellion, a glorious government upon the earth. Can you imagine? Can you imagine worshiping the Lord over, over the government? And you will, because it'll be Jesus. And then lastly, last thing we're going to read here is about the eternal state. The thousand years comes to an end and um, there's a rebellion that takes place. The Lord squashes that rebellion. And then Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 22 through 27. Um, we'll read these together and we'll find out what eternity is going to be like. 
Now I saw in heaven a new heaven and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, we've already have experienced that in our resurrection, our glorification, but the rest of the world will now experience this. Then he sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all day, at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means be enter anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then we just have to wait and see what's going to happen. But that is the eternal state. And then there's, what's going to happen for all of eternity? We, we don't know yet, do we? But I am certain that it is going to be something amazing. So uh, there's some other places we could have hit, but what I wanted to do is kind of like skipping a stone across the, you know, still waters and just seeing the different movements and the different events that are going to take place. I hope that you have felt like a wave of amazement coming over you again and again and again, knowing of this salvation. We can say, oh yeah, heaven, but this is it. Oh yeah, Jesus is coming back, but this is it. And you are going to be right there. You know, you may feel disconnected as a believer, but you're not. You are fully connected to the King, and you are going to be a part of this. So quit living on the edges and come and get fully involved in the salvation you have. You have a day in a meeting with Jesus. And you want to be ready for it as I want to be ready for it. If you've never come to Christ, if you've never confessed your sin and repented and asked Jesus to forgive you, well, you have to do that to have this. Because he's not going to get anybody in a headlock and drag them into heaven. The only people who are going to be in heaven are those who have confessed him as Lord and Savior of their own volition. Just like marriage. You got an opportunity. I've done, I don't know how many weddings I've done, but in every one of them, I've always said, do you take so-and-so? And the, the, the groom will respond and say, I do. Or the bride will respond and say, I do. I've never had anybody say no yet. <laughs> Could happen. You never know. But as an act of will, you had to say, I do. You have to come to the Lord. It's not enough just to stand up at the altar and say, well, there's a wedding going on. You have a place to respond to Jesus. I hope you've responded to him.